this podcast is about the unexplained death of a young woman, Laura Van Wy. I have reviewed and I will report on the contents of official case files provided by the police department that's investigating her possible homicide, including witness interviews and police reports. You will hear me provide my own opinions about these materials in the hopes of shedding new light on this cold case. It's important to stress, no person has ever been charged or convicted of killing Laura, and everybody identified in this podcast is innocent until proven otherwise. Previously on Bonaparte. I think they were shocked by the custody proceedings, and they had no idea what lengths I would go to. The big issue was who got to, you know, raise Sam, even though we were all at Laura's funeral. People sort of felt like, in the middle of all of this, that they kind of needed to take sides. For a time, that was a bonding experience between the three of us, until he was in a position of being thought to be a suspect. We're going to think about the evidence and think about the, th the different theories that might fit that evidence. We'll start kind of narrowing it down as to what we really know happened. Over the past few weeks, we've covered a lot of ground in this podcast. We've met Annie and Laura and have begun to examine some of the questions surrounding Laura's death. We've seen how Laura's death fractured her community. And there's more to come. There have been developments in the police investigation since 1996, and Annie has been pursuing some investigative leads of her own. To get some perspective on the evidence gathered so far, and to help Annie and I understand the subtleties of homicide investigations, we spoke with Jim Trainum, the retired D.C. homicide investigator you heard in the last episode. He's going to help us analyze the evidence and consider some of the possible explanations for Laura's death. So let's start with a quick recap of what we know. Laura Van Wy turned 21 years old, just a few days before she died. She lived in Iowa City with her mother, Leanne, where she was raising her 14-month-old son, Samson, and starting a daycare business. To everyone that knew her, Laura was extraordinary. She was an artist through and through. But she was also troubled with an abusive father and an overworked, unduly strict mother. She dropped out of high school, she struggled with drug use, and she caused those close to her to fear for her future. The birth of Laura's son, Samson, in August of 1995, appeared to turn that around. It was like Sam had fulfilled her. After Laura's immediate family, the most important person in Laura's life was Samson's father, Donnie Knight. Laura and Donnie were together for three years. Their relationship was intense, and Laura told friends that Donnie had been violent with her. In the summer of 1996, they were on a road trip with Samson and with Donnie's brother, and Donnie struck Laura during an argument. Laura took Samson back to Iowa City and ended the relationship. I'm like, okay, that is it. You are done with this guy. Whether the breakup would have stuck, I don't know. Laura and Donnie had separated before, but it was the most serious wedge to have come between them. Months later, as the leaves turned Iowa City a beautiful red and gold, Laura's life centered almost solely on Samson. Then, on the afternoon of Friday, October 25th, Laura left Iowa City with Donnie and Samson to go to a party at Donnie's family home in Bonaparte, about an hour south of Iowa City. According to the people at the party, Laura left Bonaparte around 11 p.m. with Donnie's sister, Sarah, and her husband, Tony. 
They drove 30 minutes south to Cahoka, where Laura and Samson planned on spending the night in Tony and Sarah's trailer. Just before 2 a.m., a truck driver notices something, or perhaps feels his truck hit something. On Route 136, a stone's throw from Tony and Sarah's. He saw something out of the corner of his eye, as he describes it, possibly hay or something that might have fallen off a truck on or near the shoulder. He pulls to the side of the road and walking back into the darkness, finds Laura with her legs smashed and a small pool of blood under her head. At first glance, it looks like a hit and run, but it's a clear night with a full moon and the highway where Laura is found, it's straight and flat. There's nothing that looks like a, an accident took place here. There's no sign of a collision on the roadway, no skid marks or broken glass, and very little blood. Her clothes and hands are unmarked, and she's found holding a water bottle that's sitting upright on the pavement. Most oddly, she's wearing someone else's sweatpants and jacket, and she has a strange collection of baby items with her, as well as a pocket knife with its blade open. Later, the police find Laura's bag a few hundred feet away in a neighbor's yard, containing a mix of her and Samson's clothes. And they determine that her jacket and the knife she's carrying belong to Tony. The police interview Tony and Sarah and everyone else who was at the party in Bonaparte. Their statements are consistent in all but small details, and they offer no clues about what could have happened to Laura. The case goes cold. Trying to puzzle out what happened to Laura today, 25 years later, there's not much that we know for sure. We don't even know they made it to the trailer. She left the house. We only have the Bergmans saying what happened after that, right? Nobody else says what happened after that. So where do we go from here? From Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, I'm Jason Stavers, and this is Bonaparte. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As I've been reporting this story and talking to dozens of people about the facts, there is a recurring dynamic in how those conversations go. In fact, it recurs so regularly, it's begun to irritate me. I call it speculation bingo. In bingo, you hope to connect a line of numbers across your bingo card based on what numbers get drawn from the hopper by the person who's calling the game. When I tell people the facts of Laura's case or share the file with them, 
there's almost always this compulsion to try and solve it. They think of each piece of evidence like a number drawn from the hopper. They sift through the facts and statements, ticking off items on their scorecard, until, bingo, they think they've solved it. Only, nobody really does. There's always a question left unanswered by every theory, a piece of evidence that doesn't fit. And so they go back to their card, looking for another what-if, another bingo. It's a natural human reaction. I do it as well. I have spent hours and hours speculating over what could possibly make all these strange facts line up. I guess that's why speculation bingo has started to annoy me. I've been through every number in the cage, rearranged them on my card every possible way. The evidence we need to line everything up, it ain't there. We need new evidence, not new theories. But Jim Trainum sees this differently. In his view, speculation bingo is actually a critical part of the investigative process. One of the things that I found that's really important when you're looking at any case is just being able to spend time thinking about the evidence, thinking about different possible scenarios. Jim speaks from experience. He spent 27 years on the Washington, D.C. police force, where, among other accomplishments, he built and ran the department's cold case unit. That's where I started to develop a methodology to do major case reviews. We had like over 2,000 open cases at that time that we were trying to you know, do something with. Jim's experience has taught him the value of speculating about what might have happened. You're not going to be trying to prove a theory. You're going to be trying to test a theory. So if we have a theory of the case, then we're going to be looking for evidence not only to prove it, but that might discredit it as well. So with that encouragement, I met with Annie and Jim at Annie's office in New York to play some speculation bingo. We're back in the file room at Gibson Dunn in New York, which has somehow gotten even more crowded with boxes since our last visit. I have to crawl between two intimidating stacks of heavy black binders just to reach a wall outlet for my digital recorder. But once our recording gear is set up, I flip open my laptop to bring Jim into the room on a Zoom call. I was going to walk away for a second to get a pen. Jim is the most punctual Zoom participant I've ever met. I have found another one. I get an alert that he's in the waiting room on my Zoom account at least 10 minutes before the start of every call we have. Oh, here it is. Of course, they always go dead on you. To get us started, I asked Jim to give us a bit of a primer on how he approaches the evidence in a case like this. You pretty much have to start off with the investigator's mindset, which is you basically assume nothing, you believe nothing, and you challenge everything. I try to boil down the evidence that we have into what they we call hard facts and soft facts. Hard facts are things that you can pretty definitely prove. Uh, you know, there are things like the physical evidence. You know, we know exactly where there were shoe prints. We know exactly what the injuries are, things along that line. Jim's notion of hard facts is pretty narrow. It's mostly physical evidence, and not just that, but something that's been photographed or carefully documented. And Jim wants to have seen the documentation to be able to find it again in the file. These days, the police have access to far more hard facts, thanks to our electronic devices. I mean, this is back in the 90s, so uh, you didn't have, like, toll roads and things like that. No cell phones, none of that good stuff that we rely on today. If Laura had a cell phone, we'd have known where she was throughout the night, who was near her, and who she was communicating with. These days, cell phone records are a primary source of evidence for investigators. That's a big part of what makes this case so ripe for speculation. 
So much of what we think we know depends on soft facts. Soft facts are more subjective. They're basically like witness statements. You know, people see things differently. They interpret things differently. Memory changes over time. Sometimes people have reasons to withhold information or mislead the police for whatever reason. So when you start looking at witness statements, you have to take them with a grain of salt. And you also try to have to corroborate them as much as possible by comparing them to the hard facts. When you're coming up with a theory about the case, trying to connect the numbers on your speculation bingo card, you can't avoid the hard facts. Soft facts are different. If you think you know something because a witness said so, you have to account for the fact that witnesses can be mistaken and they can lie. Likewise, people do things out of character and everyone has secrets that might cause them to act in ways you wouldn't expect. So you can speculate about possibilities that are inconsistent with soft facts. But the more soft facts you have stacked against a theory, the more implausible it might be. Still, there's a world of difference between implausible and impossible. The purpose of the conversation with Jim is to develop an array of possible theories. Some are more plausible than others, and all are just speculation. So with that guidance from Jim, the three of us are ready to walk through the evidence. To prepare for the conversation, I organized possible theories of the case into several categories. So the first bucket that I've come up with is what if every one of our witnesses is telling the truth, okay? Laura went back to Cahoka with Tony and Sarah. Uh, Laura was put to bed with Samson and Molly in the living room. Tony and Sarah went to sleep. They heard nothing. The next morning they wake up, they find Samson, they find Molly but no Laura. So I'd call this the own volition theory. So the, the own volition theory is that Laura gets up and leaves after Tony and Sarah go to bed. She goes out, ends up near 136 because she's taking a walk or because she's lost or for whatever reason. But she doesn't encounter anybody who's a bad actor in this situation. She simply gets there on her own and then she's struck by a vehicle and that's uh, the cause of her death. Now, one theory that explains that bucket is that she left in the middle of the night to go get diapers for Samson, but that's not the only reason she could have left, right? So let's discuss, is that a credible theory that could fit with the evidence and what weighs against it? Well, first off, she spends an awful lot of time getting ready to leave the house. I mean, she puts on somebody else's jacket, she puts on an extra layer of pants, she gets a knife, um, if the bag is her, she takes the bag with her. And that thing about the blanket up under her jacket to the point where the first responders thought that, that she may be pregnant, I wonder what significance, if any, that may have right there. Why does she put on all this extra clothing? Why does she take baby stuff with her? If she's just walking four blocks to the Ayurko, why, why is she bothering to do any of that? It wasn't very cold that night. I think it was in the low 50s. And at that point, it was probably 60. And not to mention the impetus for her leaving. If it really were diapers, again, why wouldn't she have first tried to get one from the Bergman's own one-year-old baby? That suggests that there's some other impetus, as you note, Jim, for leaving the trailer. Also, it requires that Sam not have woken anyone up. And some people have pushed back on this saying, well, he's 14 months old, 14 months old, sleep through the night. Of course, 14 months old, sleep through the night. But Leanne has confirmed to me that he was co-sleeping still with Laura, had slept with her every night. And he is literally naked on the floor of a trailer in October. 
So that strikes me as quite implausible, that he would not have woken up at some point. I think the other issue is there are reportedly grass stains on some of her underclothing. How did the grass stains get there? Well, the grass stains I'll have to leave out simply because we only have heard about that. We don't have any real proof, but that's something that we should look for to either confirm or deny. Here's an example of Jim's conservative approach to hard and soft facts. Clements testifies about the grass stains at the inquest, but there's nothing about them in his original report or in the medical examiner's report. Jim's most significant pushback, however, is on the blood evidence that everyone from Clemens to Annie have focused on. Remember, a central tenet of the story, as Annie told it to me back in that Manhattan backyard, is that the lack of blood at the scene means Laura must have been injured elsewhere and then transported to the side of Route 136. That feels like a hard fact, doesn't it? Physical evidence, well-documented. So it should eliminate the own volition theory, since Laura couldn't have gone anywhere on her own with her injuries. But Jim, he's not so sure about this. I still disagree with everybody about the lack of blood there. Maybe the reason there was not a lot of blood on the scene was because once she had just been put there or she was just you know, hit there, either way you want to go, Two, she was still alive, so she hadn't bled out that much. And three, whatever she did bleed was absorbed by the clothing. We know Laura lost liters of blood, but she's wearing two pairs of pants, which would have soaked up some of it, and we don't know how much blood she lost in the ambulance. So Jim's not ready to eliminate entirely the possibility that all of Laura's injuries occurred where she was found. That keeps the own volition theory in play, although just barely. It's not literally impossible, but it's highly improbable. Already, this discussion is proving its value. It has sharpened our understanding of what the crime scene evidence can and can't tell us. Also, at Jim's suggestion, Annie has been talking to a medical examiner about the possibility of reevaluating the autopsy evidence. This might shine new light on questions like whether Laura was injured on two separate occasions or at two different locations. There's some evidence in the records we have that Laura was bleeding from her head wound while upright, blood on her shirt in a vertical pattern, but it's not conclusive. It's also not clear from the report we have whether Laura's leg wounds could have come from being struck by a vehicle rather than being run over or come from some other source entirely. A full review of the records might answer some of these questions. So let's, let's move to the next bucket. The next bucket is what I'm calling the wrong place, wrong time theory, right? Which is that she leaves the trailer potentially of her own volition, and then some sort of dispute breaks out, uh, and she is assaulted and then either left for dead or, you know, the, the injuries, are, the, the, the scene is staged, something like that. I mean, I think there's two scenarios within this scenario. One is that she leaves the trailer for one reason and something happens while she's out. The other is that she leaves it for a specific reason, such as meeting somebody and then things go wrong, Right. I have no reason to think she knew anybody down there. Like, she had been there before, but I have no reason to know that, or no reason to think that Laura knew anyone in Cahoka except the Bergmans. It's also possible that Laura left the trailer to buy drugs. Laura definitely was not into drugs at this point in her life, but if she had been, she would have been getting them in Iowa City, not in Cahoka, right? So I think it's implausible that she left the trailer to meet anybody. People do have secrets in their lives, and they do do strange things that is kind of hard to unravel. Also, we're not necessarily in a world where Tony and Sarah are telling the truth at this point. It very well could be that 
um, she and Sarah go out. Like, they, yeah. they want to have fun. Their kids are taken care of. There's an adult in the trailer. Let's go meet up with my buddy so-and-so or yeah. let's go to a bar. Yeah. Tony's like annoyed and drunk and he goes off to bed and uh, Laura opens the closet. We know she likes to put on costumes and be performative. She sees this black satin jacket with Mike Sanders masonry on it and says, oh my God, what is this? This is amazing. And puts it on and goes into one of her kind of, you know, costume approaches. Uh, And that could precipitate or be part of them having some desire to go out and, and, you know, have fun. And leave the uh, child behind. Yeah, because the t- Tony would have been at the trailer with the, in this scenario, he would have been there with his daughters and Samson, right? Right, so- yeah. Can I throw something into the mix that I had been thinking about uh, in reference to her not leaving on her own at this point? Yeah, go ahead. Jim had found a new way to connect the numbers on his bingo card, one neither Annie or I had considered. I mean, is there a possibility that Tony in his drunk state came on to Laura? Yes, I do think there is that possibility. And maybe Tony didn't even know what he was doing. Maybe he just stumbled in there and, you know, and hit on her or whatever, right? And she was like, I got to get out of here. That theory really doesn't tick off any of the numbers on our sheet like yours. But what it does, it just gives us a possible motivation for her leaving the house. If Laura left the house because she felt unsafe or had been in an argument with Tony or Sarah, she certainly would have taken Samson. And there's no evidence of tension between Laura and either Bergman. This is pure speculation. The idea of Laura leaving the trailer prompts a thought from Annie, however, about the baby blanket found under her coat. One thing I thought about the blanket under the jacket is if you were going to carry your child and it was a somewhat chilly autumn night, That is what you would do. You would wrap them in a blanket and put them under your coat against your chest, and maybe that explains Tony's coat because it's bigger, big enough for her to hold her baby. There's some evidence that Laura may have been walking around Cahoka that night, and some of it supports the possibility that she was in some sort of confrontation. Several people called the police to say that they had seen something strange that night, including strange cars or someone walking on the highway. Most don't fit the timing or other evidence, and even if they did, there was little follow-up by police and not much can be done with these vague sightings. Still, a few are interesting. One is that a woman told Officer Clemens that she and some friends were driving by the area where Laura was found at around 1.30 a.m., just before the truck driver found Laura, and they saw what they thought was a dog crossing the road. When they learned a woman had been found there, the witness told Clemens, they realized It could have been a person on her hands and knees. If that was Laura, perhaps she'd been struck in the head and her assailant had left with Samson, and now she was crawling, disoriented. Or perhaps the women just saw a dog. The second piece of evidence is that a Cahoka resident told the police that at 12.25 a.m., she was driving down Cahoka's main street when she saw a car making a U-turn ahead of her, then turn off the road illuminating a woman with a black jacket in its headlights. At that moment, a woman in the car yelled, you fucking bitch, at the woman in the black jacket. There's no further description of either woman, and neither was identified by the witness. And that took place, you know, interestingly, near the police station. It took place a couple blocks north of the streets she's staying at. So if Laura were fleeing from someone, or in some sort of danger, perhaps she was headed to the police station. I guess the question is, are there investigative routes 
that we could take um, to disprove or prove uh, the wrong place, wrong time theory. Re-interview all the neighbors, right? There may be someone who heard something or saw something that night. I would also want to confirm that it was her footprints in the field right there, which can still be done. They should have the plaster cast and they should have the um, shoes still. So that's the wrong place, wrong time bucket. Uh, that brings us to the lone visitor. I like that. <laughs> uh, also known as the someone might have come down that night theory. So under this theory, um, someone follows Laura to Cahoka, shows up at the trailer, and is the precipitating event. I'm calling this the someone might have come down that night theory because that's the phrase Tony used when he called the police last year. You'll remember his theory at the time was that Sarah was having an affair with somebody and Laura was going to tell him. Then the person that Sarah was having an affair with shows up at the trailer to try to stop Laura. Sarah flatly denied the affair story, and there's no other evidence supporting it. In any event, the gist of this theory is that someone from Bonaparte or somewhere else comes to the trailer and lures Laura out. I think the most likely version of this, or the one that fits kind of the circumstantial evidence, including just what we know about women who are murdered, is that she and Donnie have some sort of dispute. After she leaves, Donnie decides that he's not finished with this conversation. He believes they're going to reconcile. He believes that, that she's wronged him, any number of things. He gets in his car. He drives to Cahoka. He could easily tap on the, the door of the trailer. Laura lets him in. They go outside, what have you. Whether it started out as a conflict or not, it turns into a conflict. It gets violent, uh, and he is the precipitating cause of her death. Doesn't have to be Donnie, but that seems like the most likely figure in the uh, lone visitor theory. But then again, why would she be dressed the way that she was? Well, if she, let's say they are going to go take a walk and they're going to bring Samson, or she changes her, he, he's like, you wanted to go camping, let's go camping. So she's she's adding clothes to get warm. Uh, maybe the green jacket is in Tony and Sarah's bedroom or in Molly's bedroom, and she doesn't want to wake the the younger child. She doesn't want to wake them, so she grabs this other jacket. She grabs a knife because she's used to having a knife, but she left her knife at at Donnie's. And the but the critical thing to me about the lone visitor theory with Donnie is that it it does help explain Samson because she brings Samson. She's with Samson's father. Let's say they're having like an emotional connection, but then as sometimes happens, it turns sour. She could bring Samson. It's credible that Donnie brings Samson back to the trailer. Samson's not going to be as distraught when he's with Donnie. Donnie can calm him. Donnie can make it look like he was there the whole time because he knows the child, he knows the trailer, that sort of thing. Not highly likely, but to me, that's the strongest argument in favor of the Donnie theory is that I think it does the best job of any of these of explaining the weird things that she has with her and the mystery of what's happening to Samson during this time. And so it boils down to how can we prove or disprove this? Well, Donnie has alibis. So Donnie's alibi is his mother as well as his younger brother, maybe two of his brothers, Ben and Isaac, I believe, they all say that Donnie was at the house all night and that they stayed up late playing video games. Well, but hang on, hang on. There's one more person. And this is interesting, right? One of Isaac's friends, another high school kid, is also at the house until late that night. Confusingly, she's also named Sarah. According to Donnie, this Sarah leaves at 2 a.m., a few minutes after Laura is found in Cahoka. 
But when the police interview her, she says she left the house at around 11 p.m. She says she leaves right after Laura leaves. And so she's the only independent non-family member that is uh, Donnie's alibi, right? Right. We don't like to... (laughs) We typically uh, don't like to use family members as alibis, but that's sometimes all you have. We discussed this issue with Donnie's alibi. Perhaps this Sarah was at the night house until 2 a.m., but she was out after curfew and didn't want to admit it. Or perhaps Donnie simply forgot when she left. It wouldn't have necessarily stuck out in his mind at the time. But if he's intentionally deceiving the police about it, that's important to know. Also, there's another candidate for the someone-came-down-that-night theory. You might remember that in the descriptions of the party in Bonaparte, witnesses told the police that late in the evening, a friend of Rebecca Knight's came by and got into an argument with Laura. So... This person is interesting because he actually had a verbal confrontation with Laura the night that she died, right? And she actually accused him of something pretty terrible. She accused him of rape. And it turns out he had convictions for sexual, uh, you know, for sexual crimes. You know, Laura probably really humiliates and angers him by making this accusation, whether or not it's true. The difficulty with this is that You know, if something had happened at the party, if he had hit her at the party or otherwise become physically violent with her, just as there were a lot of witnesses to this verbal altercation between them, there would have been a lot of witnesses to that. If he were going to pursue Laura down to Cahoka, he would have had to somehow lure her out of that trailer, which, you know, seems doubtful. Certainly, if she saw that person standing there, she would not leave the trailer, right? Also, his presence doesn't explain why Laura is wearing Tony's jacket or her odd possessions, or any of the other peculiar issues we've discussed. The police don't appear to consider Rebecca's friend a person of significant interest, and we conclude he just doesn't make our bingo numbers line up. So the last one we've kind of gotten to a little bit, which is the Bonaparte theory, right? The Bonaparte theory is that, in fact, the primary injury, presumably the head injury, takes place in Bonaparte, and that there's an elaborate effort to stage a hit-and-run in Cahoka. So you noted, Jason, that this is, was my impression when I first read the file a few years ago. The reason that was my impression is that it seems doubtful to me that she would have left her diaper bag and purse behind, suggesting that she was not conscious or at least not uh, calm when she left. However, I, I don't actually really think anymore that that's what happened. I really don't. I would definitely put that extremely low on the list. Moving a body is difficult. And you typically don't want to move a body because of many things. One is just hard to move. It's messy. Uh, it, it also increases the risk of you being seen with that body. So unless the body is someplace that's going to be tied to you, you typically don't want to move it. You just leave it there and just get that, you know, the hell away. I also think that theory, there would be would have been a lot more witnesses to the initial crime, right? And, you know, the more people you have knowing what happened, obviously, the, the more danger there is that someone will talk. Another thing to keep in mind here, Jim's referring to moving a body. But Laura wasn't dead yet. Whatever happened here, it wasn't a case of an accidental killing that was then clumsily covered up. If someone left Laura by the highway that night, They left her there to die. A lot of this, I think, is going to stay a mystery unless 
they get lucky and, and somebody decides, you know, to have that road to Damascus moment and, um, and come forward. If there is a person to come forward. Speculation bingo ends where it always ends, with an empty bingo cage and nobody scoring a bingo. But that doesn't mean it's not productive. We've come up with a few new theories. Jim's suggestion that Tony came on to Laura or otherwise caused her to leave the trailer is interesting. And our conversation has produced new investigative avenues. Having a medical examiner review the autopsy records could narrow the set of possibilities. And Annie has specific questions to ask him. That depends on shaking loose the necessary records from law enforcement, however, which is another project for Annie. And Annie is going to follow up on the potential weak link in Donnie's alibi, who says she left hours before Donnie said she did. I also put Jim in touch with Bruce Clemens, and they're going to go over Bruce's analysis of the crime scene. In the background of any conversation about the quality of our evidence is the question of how strong the investigation was that produced it. The impact of law enforcement's failure to solve this case has been massive. Those close to Laura are left with this gnawing uncertainty. And those who are with her that night have lived under suspicion for 25 years, perhaps unfairly, perhaps not. The division between Leanne and Donnie over Samson and the course of Samson's life are all a product of Laura's case remaining unsolved. Leanne has been frustrated with law enforcement for every day of those 25 years. I just felt that Missouri law enforcement didn't know anything. And the more I looked at the record, the more I realized they didn't put anyone under oath. They just have all these random statements. They never put anything together. And I really started losing trust in them. She feels differently about Officer Clemens, who was the first investigator on the scene and continues to follow the case to this day. Bruce Clemens really cares. When he retired and went off the force, or he went into another area of government and did not was not a Missouri State Highway Patrolman anymore, I really felt abandoned. And I never got any good information from anyone after that. And I just kind of gave up. And there are mistakes. One glaring error was the handling of Laura's clothes. We know that her clothing was cut but we don't know if the medics did it or if it was done at the hospital. I don't see any evidence or any information that they were met by an officer or a trooper at the hospital. Somebody who could carefully tag and bag the clothing as they cut it off. Because if you're in a you know trauma room or something like that, they're cutting the clothing off and they're just tossing it to the side in a pile. And so that's gonna, that's gonna cause problems it's hard to say that this had any impact on the investigation. And as Jim was also quick to point out, no investigation is perfect. Oh my God, I look back on some of my cases and think if I knew, there, there were so many ones that I didn't solve that I really think could have been solved, but they weren't simply because of, of missteps for various reasons. In Jim's view though, the police may have made a more significant strategic error in the way they handled Tony and Sarah Bergman. The biggest thing that I saw is that as soon as they began getting information about who she was last with, they began to accuse Tony and Sarah, you know, pretty much on the get-go, which shut them down right there. So what they were planning on doing is they were going to accuse them and then they were going to do what I call investigate by polygraph. 
A polygraph is a lie detector. They aren't terribly reliable, and they can't be used in U.S. courts. But investigation by polygraph doesn't depend on the polygraph's accuracy. It employs the machine's power to intimidate. Their tactic is they bring the person in, they really hype the polygraph. This is a scientific machine. You cannot beat it. It's infallible. What it's doing is it's measuring your body's stress reactions. Because when you lie, you go under stress. They'll sometimes do little tricks with it. Like um, they you know, hook up uh, bands around your chest to measure your respiration. They have a blood pressure cuff on. Uh, they have a um, device on your finger that measures your pulse and things along that line. And sometimes in order to show that this machine quote unquote works, they'll do something like they'll have you write a number between one and 10 on a piece of paper and then put it under your leg. And then they'll ask you, is it number one? Is it number two? Is it number three? And they're able to correctly pick what number it is based on your reaction uh, to the machine. It's more of a trick. It's just more of a way to get people over the hump of holding back information from the detective. But you can't make someone take a polygraph. And being aggressive like this can be an all or nothing gamble. There's this thing that happens when you start to accuse people. Let's say that you're innocent and I believe you're guilty. I believe that you have knowledge of something that you're not telling me. And I began to accuse you of that. Well, the more I accuse you, the more defensive you become. And then I interpret that as you being deceptive and it becomes this vicious circle. And um, that's a really poor way to get an investigation going. Hindsight is 2020, But Jim thinks that if the police had taken a more delicate approach with the Bergmans and with the Knights, they might have made more progress, perhaps gotten more information from them, or ruled them out. Now, every time I've spoken with law enforcement about Laura's case, I've asked what they wish they'd done differently. The most interesting answer I've heard was from Scott Summers. Summers was the prosecuting attorney in Cahoka at the time of Laura's death and for many years later. In that role, he worked closely with law enforcement on the investigation and would have been responsible for prosecuting anyone they arrested. Cahoka is a small town. Summers first heard about the case that Saturday morning while getting gas in his car. Neil the Brown, the fellow that owns the station, his older brother was a good friend of mine in high school and college, and Neil does all the repairs on our cars and stuff for us. So at any rate, I think he was the one that told me they'd found this girl dead there along the highway. And so I called the sheriff to find out from him what, you know, what had happened and what we knew about it at the time. And uh, I know we tried, they tried to interview a couple of people who she had been with and they lawyered up right away and refused to answer any questions or provide any information. And to my knowledge, 25 years later, they haven't provided any other information Yeah, that's about as succinct a summary of the investigation as you could hope for. 25 years later, the witnesses haven't provided any other information. And perhaps it is because the police turned accusatory so quickly. But still, are the police powerless in the face of a refusal to talk? As a journalist, one of the things I miss most about being a lawyer is the power to put someone under oath. It's more effective than you might think. It's not just the oath but the ceremony of setting a place and a time, serving papers, having a court reporter take down every word. 
People do still lie. I'm pretty sure I've been lied to by witnesses. But most people won't, or they'll go out of their way to try and avoid it. I've seen plenty of witnesses distort the language to try to testify around a bad fact rather than simply lie. But you don't have to take my word for it. There's an infamous historical example that took place just two years after Laura died. President Bill Clinton was brought before a grand jury to testify about his alleged affair with Monica Lewinsky. Challenged to defend his previous denials of the affair, Clinton went around in some extraordinary linguistic circles to avoid lying to the grand jury. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. If is means is and never has been, that's one thing. If it means there is one, that was a completely true statement. Even politicians who, let's face it, lie all the time, will go pretty far to avoid lying under oath. Anyway, I can't put the last people to see Laura alive under oath, but Scott Summers could have. Would it have been your decision to um, impanel a grand jury? I would have have filed whatever paperwork would have been done to do that. So why do you think you didn't do it? At this point, Jason, I don't know. I wish we, quite frankly, I wish we had. To be fair to Summers, it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback. Neither he nor anyone else involved back in 1996 could have known that this case would go unsolved for 25 years. That's not the normal outcome, at least not in Cahoka. The murder cases they did have in Cahoka, they typically went differently. I don't think I was more than 45 days into the job, basically. And the sheriff hands me a note that said, uh, dead baby, foul play, and I'm thinking, holy goat, you know, what I get myself into. And our sheriff and a highway patrol officer were interviewing the aunt of the child who had died, and they were about ready to give up. They were believing that she was being honest, that she had nothing to do with it. And she said, well, if I tell you what really happened, I'll go to jail. And that was all it took. She confessed to hitting the child, who had fallen and struck his head. In another case, a woman was killed during a robbery. The police pinned the case on a kid who lived next door. What brought your attention on the neighbor kid? The family was able to say that there were some coins that this lady had collected that were missing, and he had been seen at an arcade and was using some odd coins, basically. Like to put in Uh, the video game cabinets? (laughs) Correct. They pled to murder second and burglary first, if I recall correctly. What stands out to me about these stories is that in both cases, the perpetrator more or less falls into law enforcement's lap. That's not to say they didn't earn their paychecks. Not at all. It's by doing the routine canvassing and questioning that these cases break. And that's what happened here. That's what happens in most cases. Basic police work leads to the killer. In a tough case, though, with no confession and no antique coins being used to play space invaders, it takes more than routine police work. A case like this is going to depend on someone going above and beyond the routine. When I was in Cahoka, I visited with police chief Bill Conger, who has been a cop in Cahoka since the early 1990s. As a young officer, he had a small role on Laura's case, and it remains the only unsolved murder on his docket. I asked Chief Conger about Bruce Clemens, the first investigator on the scene, the night Laura was found. He's never had a lot of hair. <laughs> He's a little bald. He's about 6'1", probably at that time 250. 
uh, weightlifter. We, we lift weights together at his house. Very intelligent man. Very good at what he did. Uh, he went from here to working for the governor with grants and, and those kind of things. So, no, very intelligent man. Good officer. Great officer. Clemens played an important role in the case, and he remains invested in it to this day. He stayed in touch with Leanne, and he's spoken with me on several occasions, as well as with Jim Trainum. But he was not actually in charge of the investigation. That duty fell to Sergeant Ernie Schroeder. I reached out to Schroeder for an interview, but he would only speak briefly with me. He told me he couldn't remember much about the case, nothing that wasn't already in the file. I asked Chief Conger about Schroeder as well. Do you remember Ernie? Chief Conger paused for a moment when I asked him. He actually leaned back in his chair before he answered. Ernie had been here forever. Um, Ernie was, was a good officer. I think uh, he was a little more laid back. He was, um, Bruce was more gung-ho. He, he wanted to get in and get done what we needed to get done and stuff, and Ernie maybe was a little more laid back. Let's get this done before we do this and do this. Where we would try to be getting everything done at once. So, seemed like. I'm not saying Ernie didn't do his job. I'm just saying he wasn't as gung ho as, as Bruce was. The tough cases, the ones there's no handbook for, these are the ones where routine police work doesn't do it. And these are the cases that end up as cold cases, the ones that only get solved when someone is gung ho enough to invest the necessary time and resources someone like Annie. Annie's most gung-ho tactic so far was confronting Tony Bergman outside his house. And that didn't appear to bear any fruit, at least not initially. But Annie figured she'd give Tony a few days to cool down and then try to call him and take a more conciliatory approach. Well, after we got back from Iowa, Annie got pulled into a trial, and I had plenty to do, and we didn't speak for a few days. Then on Tuesday night, I got a series of texts from her. The first one came in around 7 in the evening. I might call Tony right now. Then, about half an hour later, another one. OMG, we need to talk ASAP and you should record it. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Hi. Hey, what's going on? This call is being recorded. Um, so I called Tony um, Birdman because I was like, I just need a change of subject, you know. <laughs> so I called Tony Birdman, mm-hmm. and I just said I started the conversation. I, you know, I said, Tony, this is Annie Champion. I I came by your house the other day. I just want you to know I'm not the enemy, you know. And he said, I know, I know. He was he was nice, and he just said. You got to understand, you know, this dredges up a lot of stuff for me. I've been having a lot of issues. And so then he said, here, talk to my daughter. He passed the phone to Molly. Molly was five years old the night Laura died. She said she wanted to go camping, 
So Sarah had made her a bed of pillows and blankets on the trailer's living room floor, and she was supposed to share that with Laura and Samson. Molly told me that she was the last person to see Laura alive. She also told me that the police never spoke with her. Wow. I didn't didn't try to talk to her for so long. Like, I feel like some details are better left for a subsequent conversation. But she said, you know, Laura ended up leaving her diaper bag in Bonaparte, but that wasn't a big deal because we were going to go back in the morning. But, you know, she said she was the last person to see her alive. She remembers Laura getting up and saying, I'm going to, I need to go get Sam's diapers and putting on her dad's jacket. This could be a major breakthrough. Molly may be the last known person to see Laura alive, yet the police never interviewed her. And what she's saying now would go a long way towards exonerating Tony and Sarah. You know, Molly said it was a really traumatic experience for her and that it's been really hard to have so much suspicion fall on her parents. And, you know, she said, my dad is not well. And I said, I'm really sorry you had to go through that at such a young age. That's really hard. And, and I said, but, you know, you have to understand where I'm coming from, too. This is also a terrible experience for me. I don't know what happened here either. And all I have is the information in front of me, right? But she sounded, I have to say, she sounded very believable and credible to me. And not like somebody with an axe to grind or who, who was lying. This is the result of knocking on doors and talking to people, though. Keep talking. Yeah, agree. So... The plot thickens, as always seems to happen with this case. The plot thickens, indeed. But as I listened to Annie, I was more skeptical about this development. Molly was only five years old that night, and I don't know about you, but my memories from being five are scarce. And my more concrete memories, they're all connected to photographs from that time, or they match up with family stories told by my parents. How I responded when my sister was born, the night I lost my precious teddy bear, Are these really my memories, or have I just internalized photos and family stories? Of course, I also wasn't the last known person to see a family friend alive. And the urgency of the next few days could have fixed this memory in Molly's mind. But there are other reasons for caution. Molly might not have been interviewed by the police, but Sarah and Tony were, on multiple occasions. Tony and Sarah know they're under suspicion, but neither of them tell the police that Molly can corroborate their story? Molly's recollections here have to be treated as a soft fact. A very soft fact. After we spoke, Annie started having some of the same doubts. She texted me again. Molly's account does nothing to explain the blanket and the food. She's right. Nor does it explain why Laura took a bag of clothing, took Tony's knife but not his wallet, or how she ended up on Route 136. Molly, welcome to Speculation Bingo. A few minutes later, I get a string of texts from Annie. Correct me if I'm wrong, but nowhere in the police file do Sarah or Tony say Molly told us Sarah went out for diapers and took Tony's jacket. Little Molly would have said, Laura took your jacket and went out for diapers, daddy. Back to thinking it was Donnie. Followed her down there. Maybe to bring the forgotten diaper bag. She stepped outside with him and the rest is history. The call from Molly wasn't going to crack the case, but it was progress. In 25 years, Law enforcement had never spoken with her. Who else might be out there with potentially valuable information? What other numbers might we find for our bingo cards? The classic way to bring witnesses out of the woodwork is to offer a reward. 
It's one of the first things Annie and Leanne planned on doing. Back when Annie first told me this story in 2019, she said they were about to release the reward. But it turned out to be more of a project than she anticipated. I didn't realize that a reward was kind of like, you know, sort of DYI, right? I I thought that there would be more sort of institutional support for that, but there's really not, at least not in the places that I'm looking. Besides finding new leads through a reward, Annie also wanted to know everything the police had already found out. But the copy of the police file that she got from Leanne only runs through 1997, when Leanne had obtained it in Samson's custody case. When I was in Cahoka, I asked Chief Conger about that file. He didn't have direct access to it since the case was being handled by the Missouri Highway Patrol, but he told me that for some time, the physical file itself had been in the Cahoka Police Department. Everything was in a blue Missouri State Highway Patrol briefcase type thing. How much material would you say there was just in terms of volume? Like how big a briefcase are we talking? We were sitting in Chief Conger's patrol car and he held his hands out as wide and as high as the steering wheel. It was this thick and this tall and that big. So, I mean, there was a lot of casework to it. The file Annie has is only a few hundred pages, no more than a medium binder's worth. So what's in that blue briefcase, as wide and tall as Chief Conger's steering wheel? That's next time on Bonaparte. Bonaparte is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is written and hosted by me, Jason Stavers. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producers are Jason Hoke and Andrew Richards. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin, with story guidance from Matt Willis and Pete Sale. The series producer is Thomas Curry. The executive producer is Emma Weatherill. Original music by Thomas Ross Fitzsimmons. Audio mix and sound design by Peregrine Andrews at Moving Air. Visit the Champion for Laura Van Wy Facebook page or championforlaura.com for more information about how you can help. If you like the show, please make sure to leave a review and don't forget to tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.